All right, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. Now, one of the things that I love about the Christmas season are the movies, and not like the Hallmark movies. There, some of you are Hallmark Christmas movie people, and I understand, and hi, Steve, and I won't point you out for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm talking about like, it's a wonderful life, or jingle all the way. That was a joke. That one's not... Um, that one's not on my list. But one of my favorites is A Muppet Christmas Carol. Have you guys seen A Muppet Christmas Carol? It's a Charles Dickens adaptation with Muppets. Now, that's just my cheap segue from Christmas into what we're talking about today. And so I want to talk not about A Muppet Christmas Carol, but about Charles Dickens and his life for just a moment. Charles Dickens wrote a lot of novels. You may have seen movie adaptations or read some of them. David Copperfield, Little Dorrit, Great Expectations, etc. Phenomenal author from the 19th century. And a lot of his work was autobiographical. He wrote things that he knew from his own life into his stories. And that's kind of what gave them such grit and color and made them so good. And one of the things that happened to him that made its way into David Copperfield and Little Dorrit and a number of other books as minor parts is the idea of a debtor's prison. You know what a debtor's prison is? We don't do it anymore, but if you couldn't pay a debt in certain parts of Europe in the 19th century, they could put you in prison for that. And when Charles Dickens was 12 years old, his father named John Dickens was sent to debtor's prison. And he had no way of paying off that debt. And it looked like he was just going to spend the rest of his days in prison. And John, uh, Charles, rather, 12 years old, had to go work at a blacking factory just to survive. And so he wrote that story in. You might recognize Pip from Great Expectations. And you're actually seeing Charles Dickens' own life on display or, or Dorrit in Little Dorrit. And to be in a 19th century debtor's prison was to be in an absolutely impossible situation. Think about it. You don't have enough money to pay your debts, so you go to prison where you can't have a job and work to earn money to pay off the debt you owe. So what do you do? How do you get out? You don't. You end up dying in your debt in prison. Well, John Dickens did not die in prison. He was actually freed. He was freed because his friend died. They had a family friend named John Lambert or Lambay, I'm not sure. Um, he was a close family friend, and when he died, he left John Dickens a sum of 450 pounds, which was a pretty hefty bit of money. And that was enough money that John inherited that he could pay off his debts and get out of prison. In other words, John Dickens was redeemed. That's the word we're gonna really focus on today especially as we talk about the story of Judah in Genesis 42 through 44. We're going to talk about what it means to be redeemed. Now, this is the second uh, Sunday of Advent. And Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas where we spend some time thinking about our longings and how our longings are actually for Christ the King and the gifts that only the King can bring the ones that only he can give. So last week we talked about our longing, this deep longing we all have to be honored and a longing for honor. Today we're talking about a longing for redemption. 
And since we don't use the word redemption or redeem very often outside of church context, that becomes a really churchy word, and we need to define what we're talking about. Um, the one thing that you might know the word from outside of these walls is coupons, right? You're redeeming a coupon. Or, um, well, that's the only one that comes to mind. So here's what redemption means simply. It means to ransom or buy back someone or something. To ransom or buy back someone or something. That means redeemed or uh, redemption. So when someone went to debtor's prison, they could be redeemed when someone paid off their debt. And they would be restoring this person to the place in society where they belonged, restoring them to their family, restoring them to their jobs, etc. And so when John Dickens' friend died and left him some money, his redemption was accomplished and he was restored. And in our story today from Genesis 42, Judah pledges his life to redeem his little brother, Benjamin, and to put him back, restore him back to where he belongs. So we're going to look at that in two points today, the boy who belonged with his father and the son who paid the ransom. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, this is your word. We are your people. We ask now that you would send down your spirit and speak your good news to us. Would you bless us? And would you open the word to us that we might glorify you and love you? Amen. All right. Point number one, the boy who belonged with his father. Now we're going to read a handful of passages kind of stitched together from Genesis 42 through 44, but we're not going to read all three of those chapters. We're going to try to get the shape of the narrative because there's a lot of text that goes on here. Now, if this were an uh, episode of a TV show, you know, if you're watching on Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or whatever, it says previously on this show, and you can hit skip recap, right? So don't skip recap. Previously on the story of Joseph and Judah, Joseph has risen to power, right? Joseph is in Egypt. He's at the, the right hand of Pharaoh. Everything's under his control. But Joseph has not yet revealed himself to his brothers. So his other brothers think that Joseph is still dead. They have no idea that he's even alive, let alone in power in Egypt. Meanwhile, the scene shifts. There's a terrible famine in the land, not just the land of Egypt. It's not just a local famine. It's a huge regional famine. The, the word for famine in Hebrew is the same word for hunger. The land was hungry. It didn't have enough to produce what it needed to do. There was a hunger in the land, and it was affecting Egypt and Canaan, which means the family of Joseph, his father and his brothers, were going hungry. So the scene shifts now and zooms in on Jacob, the father of these 12 brothers, and he's looking at his dwindling resources, thinking, how are we going to feed our family? And now we pick up where this episode starts, Genesis 42, uh, 1 through 5. I'm going to read consecutively, but skip some larger portions and try to stitch it together. So it might be easiest to read along on the screen. But if you are following in a Bible, I will announce the verses as well. So Genesis 42, 1 through 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. 
Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 13. And these brothers said to Joseph, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, your spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So pause. Simeon, one of their brothers, he stays in jail. He goes to prison, essentially, with Joseph. Joseph puts him in prison. And the other nine brothers at this point go back to their father and their youngest brother, Benjamin, in Canaan. And they brought back the food and they presented Joseph's demands. Again, still not knowing that this is Joseph. So let's continue now. Chapter 42, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to these brothers, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Chapter 43, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. All right, pause again. When they returned to Joseph then with Benjamin, Joseph devised one more test of their honesty and integrity. Do you remember the story? They put, Joseph put a silver cup in the sack of Benjamin. So he filled their sacks with grain, sent them back to the father, and then had them pursued by the master of Joseph's house. who said, someone stole that cup. And they're like, no, no, we didn't. And they ended up saying, the person in whose sack the cup is found has to stay in prison. So uh, now that's, they've been brought back. They've been analyzed and found that the cup was in Benjamin's 
sack. So Joseph has found a way to test their loyalty and keep Benjamin, his little brother, with him. Now, Judah stands up because he's made a pledge, hasn't he, to his father. He says, send the boy with me, require him from my hand. So Judah stands up and protests to Joseph. And here's what he says, chapter 44, verse 30. Judah says, now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we're looking at the role of Judah, as you can tell from these readings, in the story today. And I want to highlight then uh, three things about Judah's role in the story. The first is Judah's love, and then Judah's mission, and then Judah's accomplishment. That's what we're going to think of, his love, his mission, his accomplishment. So first, Judah's love. Judah loved his father. Do you see it in the story? His concern for the sorrow of Jacob. Judah knows his life is bound up in the life of the youngest son, Benjamin. And if I don't restore him, it's going to kill him. He loves his father. Jacob had, the father had a special affection for Benjamin. See, Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons of his favorite wife, Rachel. And he didn't want the line of Rachel to be snuffed out. And so he loved little Benjamin. And because Judah loves his father, Judah loves who the father loves. Judah sets his heart on Benjamin and pledges his life for Benjamin because Benjamin is who the father has this affection for. Because Judah loves his father, he is conformed to his father's will. It's not Benjamin's will or Jacob's will that Benjamin be left in slavery in Egypt. It's not his will that Benjamin should be lost to them forever. Judah loves his father. And so he says, I'm going to walk in accordance with your will and he'll come back. I will bring him back. It's love for and obedience to the father that sets Judah's resolve. I will bring him back. Do you hear the grit in his voice in this story? Take my life. Reuben said, um, put my son's lives on the line. Kill my sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. And I think Jacob probably just raised an eyebrow. Like, I'm not even going to really answer that one. <laughs> Judah said, never mind my sons, take me. Right? Love for the father set Judah's face like flint to obey his father's will, even if it cost him his own life. That's Judah's love. Think about Judah's mission then with me. His mission was a mission of redemption. That's what he was going to do. Buy back, ransom back the son that the father loves. Because he loves the father, he took on himself the mission to redeem Benjamin. Now, redemption 
implies belonging, doesn't it? You can't take a pawn ticket to a pawn shop and say, I'd like that ring back if it wasn't your ring in the first place. I hope you're not all pawning rings. Please let us know if we're at that point. Um, Redemption implies a, a belonging somewhere else. This boy, Benjamin, belonged with his father. He was young. He was tender. He belonged with his father. And so Judah went to redeem him and buy him back and restore him, redeem him out of captivity back to the father. And Judah went back to Egypt that final time back after all these tests, knowing that it might be his death. I think he assumed it would be. See, Benjamin was held on charges of theft, which is serious when we're talking about, it'd be like you stealing from the vice president of the United States. It's pretty serious. I would hope it would be serious. And so Benjamin has been charged with theft and Judah says, I will take his prison sentence. Put me in jail and let Benjamin go. That was his mission. And he knew it. And his love for the father and his obedience to his will drove him forward and put steel in his spine to accomplish that mission. Which leads us to the third point, Judah's accomplishment. Did he do it? When the rubber met the road, (laughs) when everything was on the line, did Judah go through with his pledge? Well, he did. In our last reading from chapter 44, we saw how he stood, and he must have been trembling. He stood before this mighty Egyptian ruler, and he put everything on the line. And it didn't go the way that he thought it would go, but Benjamin was redeemed, just not in that expected way. See, instead of putting Benjamin in prison and instead of putting Judah in prison, Joseph melted. It says his compassion grew warm within him and he started weeping. And he said, it's me. It's Joseph. I'm your brother. And he released Benjamin and he released Judah, and he sent them all back to their father, free and full of joy. What a picture of redemption. You know, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, has two great stories of redemption, at least. Two big ones that stand out. The first is when the ram is provided instead of Isaac. And Isaac was redeemed back to his father. And the second, then, when Judah gives himself in place of Benjamin. You have the ram as the redeemer, and you have Judah as the redeemer. And these pictures of redemption are there to train our senses and point us to the redeemer. They're there to show us Christ so that when we come to the page of the New Testament, we go, there he is. There's the ram. There's the lion of Judah. And free and full of joy is the perfect description of a Christian whose heart settles down on the fullness of the redemption we have in Christ. That even though we're entangled in this world now, we can be free and full of joy. So that takes us then uh, to number two, which is the son who paid the ransom. So think back to the story of John Dickens, Charles Dickens' father that that I told you in the beginning. See, the death of his friend redeemed him and his debt was paid. And some of us, 
I, I didn't even have to connect the dots on the story. We just go, oh, that's comforting. That's beautiful. But some of us, or maybe people we know, would say, I don't think that applies to me. That doesn't move me. That doesn't help me. It's not for me, right? There are two main objections that people really have to the doctrine or the teaching of redemption. The first objection is to say, I don't have any debts. And the second objection is to say, I can pay my own debts. And if either of those are true, then Jesus died for nothing. Nothing at all. Since Adam, every single one of us has been born in a debtor's prison. See, in the 19th century, it's a great picture. 19th century debtor's prisons, your whole family could move in with you if they had the means to pay for their own food. And so in uh, Dickens' book, Little Dorrit, you have a, a picture of, uh, of almost a family gathering living inside of this little village of a debtor's prison. And so they'd even have babies there. We're born in debtor's prison. And from the moment we can make our own decisions, we're just racking up more debt. And I don't have time to thoroughly argue that case today from Scripture. But I can point to the state of our world today where I think that is self-evident. See, in the last 200 years, we've been clamoring to say, I'm not in debt. I don't owe anyone anything. That is, the, that is the, the headline of our world. That is the zeitgeist that we're living in right now. Everyone wants to say, I don't have any debts. I'm fine. Everything is fine. And we can say it claiming that there's no absolute truth. That's a very common way people say I have no debt. Like Pilate, what is truth? Nothing's really true. I have my truth and you have your truth. That's one way we say it. That there's, if there's no absolute truth, there's no standard for right and wrong. There's no objective absolute morality, which means I can do something and say, well, that's, that's right for me. And maybe it's not right for you. And that's one way we say it. We also say it by insisting that the answer to our pain and suffering is to look within. Some of us have been through years of trying that. Some of us are just on the beginning of that journey, perhaps. Well, ask someone who's been trying it for years if it's helped. We say, if we can just be true to ourselves, then I will feel free and unburdened from shame and guilt. Right? That narrative is crumbling in real time. Nietzsche's ubermensch has found himself alone and isolated, and he's got nothing to believe in. He's got nothing to put hope in. And our savior of self-discovery and self-actualization has left us empty of meaning and full of shame. It is a snake eating its own tail. It won't last. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The apostle Paul wrote this. If ever there was a saintly man after Jesus, it was the apostle Paul, shipwrecked and beaten and all of that. And he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I've got so many skeletons in my closet. That's true of every one of us in this room. We all 
owe a debt. And for all of human history, we've proven to ourselves that we are utterly incapable of paying it back. And we try and we try and it doesn't work. In other words, we need someone else to save us. We can't save ourselves. It doesn't come from within us. We need a savior from outside, someone else to save us. We need a savior who's God and man. Jesus had to be both God and man. He had to be God because the unbearable, unimaginable weight of the sins of billions of humans would be born in his waking moments, in eternity of the wrath of God, fused and pressurized into three hours of agony. He didn't just bear sins. It says he became sin and he was in the presence of God as sin itself. Only God could endure that. But he also had to be human because he had to be a suitable substitute for you and I. See, rams don't make suitable substitutes. Lambs and oxen and turtle doves and pigeons and all the sacrifices that Jews brought for centuries to the temple were merely pointing to Jesus because none of them could actually pay for the sins of a human. A human had to die. Judah didn't send a ram to stand in place of Benjamin and go to prison for him. He had to do it. He had to be a brother. We needed God to come down as a human. We needed Jesus to be God and our brother, to be our suitable substitute and to accomplish redemption. So let's then think about Jesus's love, Jesus's mission, and Jesus's accomplishment. It was for love of his father that Judah set his face like flint to Egypt to stand in place for a brother. And it was for the love of the father that drove Jesus to the cross to die for you and me. Now, just sidebar, when we say die for we do mean it benefits you. Like, what does the word for mean there? Here's what I really mean. And this is a ridiculous illustration, but it gets the point across. I was listening to um, Fresh Air on NPR the other day, and Terry Gross, the normal host of this radio show, was out sick. And so Dave Mattingly says, I'm Dave Mattingly in for Terry Gross. Dave was the substitute for Terry. That's what we mean when we say Jesus died for you. Not just so that you could add him to your life like an accessory, but so that he could be your sin on the cross, him in place of you. That's what it means. Jesus died for you. And it was love of the Father that drove him there. John, uh, Jesus says in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. You might say, why? Well, he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's why Jesus went to the cross. It's so that we will all know that he loves God. And he says in John 6, 38 and 39, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In Romans 5.19, Paul's reflected on the debt we all owe in Adam and the redemption that we have in Christ. And here's what he says. Quote, for as by the one man's, Adam's, disobedience, the many were made sinners, were all born in debtor's prison. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You're restored to the Father. To love the Father means to love who the Father loves. And God so loved the world, you. To love the Father means to obey Him. It means to set your will aside. It actually means your will is now to do His will. And that's what Jesus did. And God loves you. And it's the Father's will that you would believe on Jesus and live for absolutely ever. That's Jesus' love. Jesus' mission Because of that great love that Jesus has for the Father, Jesus came then with a mission. He didn't just pop down to the world and go, let's see what happens. He had a plan. He had a mission. We might say, for Jacob so loved Benjamin that he sent Judah to Egypt. Or for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. He came for you. And if you ask Jesus, if you were to say, Jesus, why did you come to the earth? Uh, Here's one way that he responds to that question. Mark 10, verse 45. Pastor Ryan read it in our call to worship this morning. He would say, here's why. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his, his life as a what? A ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would look you in the eye and say to you, I came to die to ransom you. You, specifically. So that you can live. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus was incarnate on a mission of redemption. That's, that's why he keeps saying, that's why I came down to, from heaven. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Jesus was born to die for you. Lastly, Jesus' accomplishment. When the rubber met the road, when everything was on the line, did he go through with it? John 13, verse 1 reads, Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, here it is, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus does not love you theoretically. He loves you to the end. He really, he really was betrayed. He really was falsely convicted as a thief. He really was nailed to two wooden beams through his hands and his feet. He really did experience the eternal wrath of God pressurized down into moments. 
he really did die. He really was vindicated as the spotless lamb of God who has the power over sin and death. He really did rise from the grave. He really did ascend to the Father. He really will come again to renew all things. He will. And he really will raise all who believe in him to new life that will have absolutely no end and leave you free and full of joy. Amen. 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 Let me pray. Lord Christ, we Lord Christ, we magnify your name and we praise you and we love you and we admire you. And we put ourselves squarely in your hands now because you are the one who has accomplished redemption for everyone that the Father entrusted to your care. You left no one out. We love you for it. Thank you for loving us to the end. Thank you for conquering over sin and death. And thank you for leaving us the table and these tokens of your love and affection for us that we might preach your redemption until you come. Let's take a few moments.